I find coffee just as coffee is exploding. And I say, I've been home with children and being good and blah, blah, blah for 20 years and um, working from home, writing from home. Yeah. And I want an adventure. Like I have a stepdaughter who'd visited 62 countries on her job. So I I want an adventure like Ilza. So when this coffee thing came, it's interesting at moments in your life, because I said to John, people were talking to me, you won't understand this until you go to one of these cup of excellence competitions and you see how we're judging coffee and you meet the cast of characters. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. Welcome to Motor de Berry, the podcast about local drinks and local sayings. I'm your host, Rose Thomas Bannister. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're already a fan of the show, you know that this is a show about local culture through drinks and dialect. Some of the folks I interview talk more about drinks, some more about language. I'm quite sure today's guest has a lot to say about both. Michael Weissman is an author and and writing teacher based in Chevy Chase, Maryland. She has published four books and hundreds of articles in August of 2023. Algonquin Press published her literary memoir, The Rye Bread Marriage, in which she tells her husband's family story and explores his obsession with Latvian rye bread while pondering the nature of long-term marriage. Her previous book, God in a Cup, is widely credited with putting the specialty coffee industry on the map. She is the co-author with Deborah Prothrow-Stith of Deadly Consequences, an Examination of Teenage Gun Violence, A History of Women in America, which Michael co-authored with Carol Himowitz, has sold a quarter of a million copies and is still in print four decades after publication. Michael has been married for 40 years to John Mangalis, an emeritus professor of electrical engineering who owns Black Rooster Food, a small company that markets authentic Latvian rye bread. If you heard season two, episode seven of this podcast, my interview with rye grain advocate Avery Robinson, that is the bread I was tasting during the episode and raving about. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we dive into the interview, I want to mention that you can support Moto D. Berry on Patreon and unlock exclusive bonus content. Find out more at patreon.com slash There's also another way that you can support the show for free by leaving a five-star rating for Moto D. Berry on Apple Podcasts and writing a review. This really helps people discover the show, and I love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Michael, I already know we have so much to talk about from writing to Latvian poetry, to traveling, to research the history and culture of food and drinks. I have so much to ask you about the rye bread marriage, but let's start with your book that's about drinks. I love the title. Why did you call your book God in a Cup? Uh, Well, I called it God in a Cup because I was at a coffee uh, competition in Panama where the coffee guys and the the judges were extremely excited by a recently discovered coffee cultivar. And I literally heard one of the judges say, although I am not religious, when I first tasted this coffee, I saw the face of God 
in a cup. And so there you have a title for a book that then everybody thinks is about religion, but what can you do about that? But um, that, that coffee, which is called Geisha, just took the coffee world, the specialty coffee world by storm. And it took a trend that was building and that people all over the world were getting excited about. And it just sent it over the top. And the price of a pound of geisha coffee wholesale, you know, went up to 100 pounds and 200 pounds in times. And it's still kind of going strong. What's interesting about that coffee is it's not my favorite coffee. And it is not the favorite coffee of a lot of coffee people because it's so tea-like and delicate that it's almost, um, it doesn't, it doesn't have quite the robustness or hint of robustness that most of us like in our coffee. Um, but it, it certainly was the right coffee at the right moment. And, um, it changed, it really, that coffee changed the world, I would say. Tell us about traveling around and doing this kind of agricultural reporting that you did for for the coffee book. Right. As, as, a, as a New Yorker girl who knew <laughs> nothing about, you know, whose parents grew tomatoes in the suburbs, but that was about it. Um, well, you know, what ha- the, the real story is, so when I started writing about coffee, the writing business was changing. I was a freelance journalist. I had written for all kinds of places, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post and blah, blah, blah. About how long ago was this? Okay. So this is about, I started writing about coffee in 2006. Mm-hmm. And the, as I started writing about coffee, our son was off living his life. I was a free woman. And I, I, I what, it, what really happened is that I had to specialize. I was encouraged to specialize and because that was the nature of the business as it was changing. And so I picked food because I had been a home cook and obsessed all my life. So it was kind of a natural. And I started writing stories about food for the Washington Post that had, which had a new um, food editor and she was looking for writers. So there was a, you know, we came together there and my best friend said, you know, in my office, she was working at the Wall Street Journal. People are sneaking up to the executive office to get better coffee. And I went, "Uh uh-huh. Like, a story. So I wrote a, a, um, I wrote a piece called the upscaling of office coffee. And it is a cliche, but I fell down the rabbit hole because I started interviewing um, the young there. They were then about the age that you are now. They were in their thirties and they were um, sort of young dudes who'd come out of the barista world and they were changing the nature of the coffee business and it and and also because of modern communications you didn't have to have a big fat juicy rich company buying coffee you could like take your backpack and get on an airplane and go talk to a farmer or Mm -hmm. a farmer's cooperative and buy coffee okay so i land i find coffee just as coffee is exploding and i say I've been home with children and being good and blah, blah, blah for 20 years and um, working from home, writing from home. Yeah. And I want an adventure. Like I have a stepdaughter who'd visited 62 countries on her job. So I, w- I want an adventure like Ilza. So when this coffee thing came, it's interesting at moments in your life because I said to John, 
people are talking to me, you won't understand this until you go to one of these cup of excellence competitions and you see how we're judging coffee and you meet the cast of characters. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And I wrote to the New York, I talked to my editor at the New York Times. She said, we're not paying you to go there. But if the story is good, we'll take it. Yeah. And I went, okay, all right, I'm going to do that. And so, and and so I get on a, I get on a plane, I get, you know, you get an air, airplane ticket and it's, this was a really adventurous kind of travel. Cause I'm going to, you know, the high up mountains where coffee is born and is grown and where these competitions are, but it's also kind of safe for an old broad because I'm with all these young people who know the, I, you know, I don't have to invent this world myself, mm-hmm. but I can participate in it and I can have the fun of, literally, um, you know, bouncing around in Jeeps on, <laughs> in the, in the coffee highlands in Guatemala and in Panama with people, with young guys who will really talk about coffee from 10 in the morning until they fall into their beds drunkenly at night. <laughs> At midnight or four in the morning. I mean, they are, it is everything to them. And I love the coffee, but it's the people that I was, Mm -hmm, I mean, it it was the mm -hmm. scene that just, Mm -hmm. that just kind of completely blew me away. And I recognized it, you know, for journalists, you have, you know, when you land in the middle of a story and you have access, this is the greatest thing in the world. And what was funny about it is that I was at the time probably old enough to be all of their mothers or almost or oh, almost. It Not- sounds like a blast. It sounds like you all had such a blast. We had a blast and it didn't matter. The generational mm-hmm. piece didn't matter because I was interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And it was, I mean, and I was loving the adventure. I just was loving the adventure. So I went to Latin America with them and then, and then I went to Africa because there was a there was a huge because people were in love with Ethiopian coffee and mm-hmm. there was a big competition in Ethiopia and I went and that was really life changing and career changing and but you know it was I, I don't think I've told this story on air before but what actually happened is I, the trip to Latin America had been totally fabulous. I think I made two trips to Latin America, one before Africa and one after. But th- that was all fabulous. And I'm going to Africa and uh, Peter Giuliano, who is now at the Specialty Coffee Association of America, and I want you to meet him because he's a brilliant, brilliant food guy. He, I was supposed to meet him in London and take a plane to Africa with him. And I've always been incredibly fond of him. The day I was leaving for Africa, my big chance, you know, here I am, this is my big literary chance. I was eating, I was anxious and I was packing and I was eating grapes off the counter and I think they weren't washed. Mm. And I get on the plane to go have the big adventure of my life and I am so sick and I get on the plane and the, the, the flight attendant looks at me. I said, oh my God, I think I have you know, dysentery. She said, this bathroom, this is yours. You can stay here all night. They were so kind to me, Mm. but I had E. coli. Oh my God. And I got it in the States. I did not get it in Africa, but I took it with me. And it was so, so this great adventure of my life 
Well, it was a great adventure, but it was about the hardest three weeks of my entire life. I wound up in the hospital in Rwanda. Oh, my God. But you see, in Rwanda, they know a lot about diarrheal diseases. They, But by that time, by the time I got in London, they totally mis, mistreated my illness. They said, oh, you know, it's nothing. It's I said, no, I'm bleeding. No, it's nothing. Well, it wasn't nothing. But they understood in Rwanda. But by the time they, I got to Rwanda, I had been sick with this for, I don't know, five or six days. And my gut was completely ruined. I mean, mm-hmm. I was destroyed for months. But, mm-hmm. you know, here I am. I'm in Africa and I have a story and I am, gosh darn it, God damn it. You know, I'm going to follow that story. And I did. And I got the story and I got the book. I mean, you know, there were no second chances. The publisher was waiting for a book. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a funny thing about this hunger for adventure because sometime later after the book came out, Peter said to me, you know, Michael, you're famous among the coffee guys and not just because you wrote the book. He said, you're famous because you're the woman who went to Africa, got horribly sick, got E. coli, which can happen, you know, got this horrible intestinal disease and toughed it out. And so, <laughs> I, you know, me, <laughs> I never really thought of myself as toughing it out, but I guess I did. And so, you know, I'm famous in coffee land. So, oh, I love this story. I love this story, not because, you know, I'm so sorry that you ended up getting sick, know, but to know, hear about this, this setback and just your, your sense of just going for it and seeing something that was going to be cool. And you're like, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to get on the plane. Yeah. And well, and you can't, you know, that's the thing in life. I mean, you get to these points and am I going to weenie? Oh, well, there was no chance I was going to weenie out, mm. but yeah, I was in Ethiopia in the hotel and I'm going, oh, this conference is nice, but this isn't what I came to Africa for. And I'm still sick as a dog, mm. but I hear that people are driving up into the highlands to go to the coffee, mm. to go meet coffee farmers. And I said, can I come with you? Nice. And I just, you know, I got, I, I, I got on a, yet another Jeep that, that what you realize in coffee world, the roads are so bad. <laughs> <laughs> the road. It's, but and and it. I mean, it was an amazing and it was an amazing adventure. I got to tell you, as a fellow foodie and fan of drinks, who did not expect to become sort of an agricultural journalist, <laughs> I, I have had some wonderful experiences with winemakers bouncing around on Jeeps on the hillsides. And those are just some of my most glorious, most adventurous fun times. I'm like, okay, now we're going to get in the Jeep and visit the vineyard. Oh gosh, I just think it's so much fun. I read and studied about these things for years and drank wine before I really got the chance to go and visit these vineyards. And I just I just gobble up every moment of it. I want to look at every plant and and see everything with my own eyes. It's there's just nothing like it. No, there's nothing. There's nothing like it. It's it's and after you've had these kind of adventures traveling for work, it's kind of hard to travel. Travel. I mean, the old fashioned way where you're going like from one site to another, because when you have the privilege of 
you know, people open doors and they invite you into mm. their, this, you know, their highly specialized worlds. And these are really gifted, passionate people. Mm-hmm. You know, you absolutely can't beat it. But I must say in terms of the trucks, and then there is the moment, at least in, in, uh, in Ethiopia and in Panama and Guatemala, there's that there is the moment when you realize that the truck is coming down the mountain and the, and it's trying to go by these huge <laughs> craters that, that that are I mean these aren't potholes they're craters they look like they were left by you know stars that landed a hundred million years ago. And there's nothing to do but close your eyes. You just close your eyes and go, okay, guess, okay. Some people die, but most don't. I guess we'll be okay. And- yes, yes, I can relate to that too. Yeah. Yeah, if if po- the podcast listeners remember or want to check it out, I believe it's um, season one, episode twelve is all about my experiences driving in Italy to visit to visit vineyards and you know the, the amazing kind of hillside situations. It's really exciting to talk to you about God in a Cup. I have downloaded the book on Kindle and really excited to read it. Before we talk about the rye bread marriage, I just want to ask you, how did your experience of writing God in a Cup and having those agricultural experiences change the way that you drink coffee? Oh, (laughs) I mean, you know... Like, what were you drinking before? Oh, I was drinking this stuff, this local Washington stuff, which I thought was good. It's called, you know what? I won't badmouth them. It's a a local roasted, and that's what I was drinking. And I would tell coffee guys how great it was. And they would say nothing the way I say nothing when people tell me how great their coffee is. Um, And, and, you know, it wasn't coffee that interested me. It was, I, I mean, it was hot water with Ritalin, actually, in those days. It was the, it was the people story. Yes. And, and the, I don't mean this in a, in an old fashioned way, but, but the, on uh, the unknownness of the locale that I was so curious about. Mm. Um, and also that these young guys actually thought that they were going to be able to rewrite the rules of capitalism. And they were going to be able to ensure that the coffee growers got adequate money, that it didn't all go to middlemen. Mm. Now, have they been successful at that? You guess. I mean, no. In fact, I followed up the book with a long long story and sprudge. It's a publication for coffee professionals. And of course, they they, capitalism is a very complicated and enrooted system and it is very hard to change it mm-hmm. and um, and certainly for the buyer to think that they are going to rewrite the reality of the seller's life ha 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 not so much i mean it it, ter- it c- turns out to be that that is extremely um patronizing mm-hmm. it, no matter how revolutionary you think you are you know you really can't it's not possible to represent two interests mm. fully passionately at the same time. Sure. So anyway, but that, 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 so, but I, so the first coffee story I did, which was this office story, I, I, um, somebody told me, Oh, go to uh murky coffee in Capitol Hill and talk to Nick Cho. Cause he's a really good coffee guy. And I, I literally, I went there and Nick Cho made me a cappuccino with, really high quality espresso and it was like i saw god in a cup yeah not quite as elevated as that but it changed me forever yeah and i am 
I'm still, I'm a journalist and I have a pretty good palate. I bet you my palate's probably not as good as yours. These I'm, things I'm, can be learned. These things can be learned. No, and, but I, and, but, well, yes, they can be learned, but B, my job is to get the story. Yeah. I don't have to do what the people I write about do. I have to be able to understand what they do. I have to do it a little. But I think one reason why I got the story better than people who are crazy about coffee is that I could see the story. Um as well, I could see the coffee and then I could see the story. And that's mm. a different thing. But I drink really, really good coffee and I, I insist on it. And I travel, you know, we are people, John and I are people. I travel with my own little um, Hario pour over. The Hario is the best because it, it has, um, the paper is fluted. So there's the, the flutes, there's the flutes going in one direction, but the Hario has lines around the edge that are horizontal. So you have heart and that delays the, as when you pour over the water, it doesn't, um, it doesn't pour through so quickly because it's delayed in two directions. You can see how mathematical I am. Um, not, but, um, so I travel with a Hario and I travel with my own coffee, which I, I must say I grind it at home I, that I do, but I will not drink bad coffee. I mean, I really won't. Yeah. And it really changed. That really changed things for you. It, it totally changes things for me. And ditto, we travel with our own rye bread. Yes. Um, always in the suitcase. And I do, it used to be that John did it and I rolled, rolled my eyes. And then the more I got into this story, the more I was like, I don't travel without this. So let's talk about rye bread. Can you tell us about your first time trying <laughs> Latvian rye sourdough bread as you relate it in, in the rye bread marriage? Okay. So um, I had met John when I was a 20-year-old college student, and he was a new PhD working at MIT Lincoln Labs. And we had this summer romance, and he was very Latvian. He was born in in Latvia. He was a refugee. He was foreign, 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 foreign. And um, we had this, and he's very cute. He was very cute. And we had this hot summer romance. And then I, I, I was 20 years old. Married? Are you kidding? I'm going to New York, man. I'm. This is not marriage. It's not in my plans whatsoever. So anyway, we broke up and um, I went to New York and wrote a book and did all the things I wanted to do. And um, you know, you know, the way you do in New York and you know, everybody, you know, what's going on. You live in New York, you know, what's going on. I do. Yes. So that's the, and I loved it. And then, um, I woke up one morning around the age of 35 and I said, Oh, I want to have a baby. I, I'd never really thought anyway. So, and just then John called and he was getting a divorce and he had, had married and had two daughters and he was still in Boston. And, Da, 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 da. So the second time we dated, I'm serious because the baby hunger is nipping. I mean, this is a mixed metaphor, but you know, the baby hunger is nipping at my feet. <laughs> yeah. That's not where it nips, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, the minute we got back together, it was just clear to both of us that we were going to get married. We had liked each other. There was chemistry. And I was visiting Boston shortly after we started dating the second time. And he took me to his mother's house to meet his mother and to taste her bread. And um, 
And we were also going, we were going later on to a dance with these Latvian people who I didn't think were very hip, but at the time, but um, John was hip, but he, all his friends were older, a little bit older than he, and they were, they were, anyway, that's a different story. They were very folksy. It was a folksy scene. And they were very, um, so they definitely, they, you know, the, because of the, this is during the, the reign of the former Soviet Union, and they were desperate to reestablish their home country. And they were, the way some exiles are, they were more Latvian than Latvians in mm-hmm. Latvia, because Latvians in Latvia are super, are Europeans. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, but that's, so I meet my mother-in-law. She's this little creature. Um <laughs> with stockings rolled at her knees, literally, and eyes that are so intelligent that, you know, I, I could have run out of the room screaming with fear because this lady wasn't going to miss much. But she had made the bread and she made homemade borscht with meat. So we sit down for dinner. And <laughs> they serve me a piece of this bread. And it she doesn't have a baker's oven. She lives in a small subsidized apartment for old people in Newton, Massachusetts. So you can imagine the quality of the oven. Probably if it went up to 325, it was a lot. And um, not so good for bread baking. Yeah. Not so good for bread baking. And it was the bread was gray instead of this beautiful black crust that we love so much or I love so much now. And it was and it was made in a form because it wasn't hot enough to you know, cohere as a beautiful Eastern European loaf that has the marks of the baker. And anyway, and I take a bite and I, I'm profoundly underwhelmed and I start, but I look at these two and I look at this guy and, and I look at his mother and I, you know, a lot was required of me at, at the moment. And as you might've noticed that I am up to the task of talking. And so I just went into a like operatic, um, aria about how fabulous this bread was and oh my god and it went so well with the soup and it was sweet and it was sour and it reminded me of the forest floor and mushrooms and oh my god but it was I, I was lying <laughs> you were lying I was lying yeah. because I didn't <laughs> like the bread I didn't understand the bread and I did I more you know it's like you can't food is a vocabulary just you know food is a vocabulary and you have to not just open yourself to the taste of one food, but if you're really going to get it, you have to understand the vocabulary in which it's spoken. Mm. And that took me that took me many years. At this point in the show, I'd like to make a shout out to Steve Silverstein, the audio engineer who assists me on this podcast. I do my own recording and editing, but I hire Steve to remove background noise, reduce sibilance, and adjust reverb to maintain consistent sound quality when I record in new environments. Even with my experience with audio, I have a background as a singer-songwriter. When I decided to start a podcast, I had a lot to learn on the technical side. Steve's informative, patient, and encouraging consultations have taught me so much. I knew audio quality was going to be a priority for me, and I feel so lucky to work with Steve. If you have a podcast or are thinking about starting one and you're looking for some help, I hope you keep Steve Silverstein in mind. And if you're a musician or have other recording needs, he's also a wonderful recording, mixing, and mastering engineer for some of my favorite artists. You can reach or recommend Steve from his Instagram, steveco.worldwide, and give him a follow to see his posts for Weird Gear Wednesdays. Again, that's on Instagram, steveco.worldwide. (music) 
After the Soviet Union collapsed, John started ordering rye bread from Latvia. And this was a whole different thing. I mean, this is this bread is a work of art the way a baguette is. I mean, it's a magnificent thing and it's a folk it is actually is the apotheosis of Latvian peasant culture. Mm. And there's a thousand years of love and skill in the making of it. The number one baker in Latvia, Lachi Bread, the, the owner of that company got, his parents had been rich farmers who lost their land. The Russians seized their land and turned it into a collective farm. When they got back their farm following the collapse of the former Soviet Union, the owner of Lachi Bakery turned his family's farm into a kind of like museum, a, a Disney world of rye bread, where they make the bread and they and they had children coming to see how you make it and newlyweds would come and make their first loaf of bread together and they had stores and restaurants and this and that. And they had a beehive oven where the bread was baked at 950 degrees. Wow. What does that taste like? What does it look like? This piece of language that is a loaf of authentic Latvian rye bread. Um, so the loaf itself in Latvia, um, the loaf's John cell, first of all, the loaf on the outside is this, is this shiny brown black and from the same and the brown black is caused by the same thing that caused co coffee roasting it's called the maillard mm -hmm. reactions that it's a browning reaction and it makes things sweeter as long as you don't burn it mm -hmm. um so so you have the the rye the maillard i'm not sure i'm pronouncing that right but no you maillard, got it maillard so you're 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 having this shiny um black brown tough crust and then you cut it, you don't cut, you don't slice it with a serrated knife. You slice it with a big heavy chef's knife because it's so dense. And then you get this beautiful chocolate brown interior. And the there's no, in the best rye breads, there's, there's no molasses. There's no browning. There's no false browning. This browning is all in the baking. Um, and it, it's beautiful and it has lovely little, it doesn't have the big puffy holes, irregularly sized holes of a baguette. The holes are more, you know, the, that, um, that as the fermentation, as it bakes and the, there's this popping inside. It's, a tighter it's crumb, as they say. Honey, yeah. you just, that's exactly it. It's a tighter crumb. And, um, the bread itself is, so Latvian rye bread is really different. You know, the, in the, Baltic. They all eat rye. Rye grows better in that part of the world and they all eat rye bread. All the other rye breads are flat a bit in their taste. They're, most of them are fermented, so they have some sourness to a degree. Latvian rye bread, which is loved throughout Eastern Europe, is sweet and sour and it has some sugar. And the sugar drives the fermentation so that it is more sour, more fermented than but but it also contrasts with the, mm. what you get in the Latvian rye bread is first of all you get this perfect toothsome texture because I always say it fights back when you bite down into it. Doesn't it's not fighting back like eating a piece of like tough meat. It's toothsome. Mm. Your teeth sink into it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first thing. And then you get this array of flavors that run you know, sweet, sour, caraway, 
And the rye itself, which is a very earthy, it's a it's a very kind of earthy flavor that's enhanced by the sweet, the sour, and the caraway. And that's all that's in it. There's no wheat whatsoever in a real loaf of Latvian rye bread. It is a magnificent accompaniment to all manner of foods, but maybe the best of all is sweet butter. If people are now completely salivating, there's two things you can do about that. You can hear even more about this particular bread that that your husband, John, is creating with Black Rooster Food in that episode yes. um, to season seven interview with Avery Robinson, where I'm tasting the bread, this exact bread that we're talking about and really enjoying it. And then also, they, um, if you're in the United States, they ship. So you yes. can go to blackfroosterfood.com and just get some and, and try this bread and order Michael's book, The Rye Bread Marriage, and put some sweet butter on your on your rye bread, slice of rye bread, and, you know, in one hand and this lovely book in the other. But that's how much love and depth of knowledge goes into a loaf of real Latvian rye bread. And, and it took me, I always like to think I'm so smart, but I'm often so stupid. Because it took me a long time to get it. When we started going to Latvia, I started to get it. And then it, the more, once I started working on this book, mm -hmm. it opened up. My, my understanding got deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. That's where the poetry comes in. Oh, I definitely want to talk about the poetry. One of the things I find most exciting about the book is the Latvian folk poetry. This poem, folk song poem called the Dina, Dinas. I'm wondering if you could actually just read to us from that that section of the book about the Dinas. Would you mind? I want to set this up a little bit. So I, I have married this guy and he is Latvian and I'm our marriage is constructed in order to allow both of us to have our different identities. But my understanding is superficial at best. And my sympathy is also superficial. Mm. And John talks about these dinas. And I, you know, I'm a writer, and I think it's interesting. And I get it that the, I, it's always fascinating to me that even translated that the language is so elusive. But I don't really understand. And John loves these dinas. He loves them. And when he was at MIT, he actually worked on a project to get them um, transcribed onto di digitally. I mean, he got some money from some foundation and he found a scholar who was interested in this. I mean, this is in his guts. And I don't, I don't really understand the bread and I don't really understand the dinas. And I know that it's important to him and he loves to sing, but uh, as I was working on this book, and I'm struggling to understand the bread. And I get, uh, I find books and articles about the dinas, and, and I find a few places where they're actually well, I think they're, the translations are elusive and beautiful. It slowly opens up to me that this is the culture, that this is where these people come from, and that the reason why the Latvians no matter whether they're Lutherans or not, they're all, they have a connection to their pagan past, which is not cutesy. It's about a relationship to nature that is beautiful and deep and definitely, definitely not a cliche. 
And that doesn't open it to me in one day. It slowly opens. But as that opens, then I am able to write a book about rye bread and my husband that is equal to the subject. And that's absolutely the absolute, and no one, Rose, has understood. I think most people read the book and they want to read the parts about the marriage and when we were having fights and all that and sort of like oh, Those are had, great. Those are great. But yeah. Right. But you understood this because of your being so um, embedded in language and poetry and stories. And um, it's very touching to me that you're not Latvian. But you have, you get the universal, um, and it's it's so it's very beautiful to me. So I can read um, the diners that John loved so much and quoted so often are four line poems, often sung, often referred to as folk songs, that describe the life cycle of Latvian peasants: the seasons passing, young people marrying, old people dying. Some dinas are hundreds of years old. Some are thought to be much, much older, although scholars find it difficult to assign dates since no one systematically wrote down the lyrics until the end of the 19th century. That's when a generation of young rebels began thinking about dinas as, and this is a scholarly term, vehicles of memory, expressing their hunger for political independence, autonomy. One scholar explained the historical importance of the Dinas, writing that, quote, folklore served to create a national consciousness and pride. This sentiment helped fuel the Latvian independence movement. The hero of this movement, Christianis Barons, in the hope of instilling pride in the hearts of his countrymen, helped launch a campaign to collect, study, and eventually publish folk song lyrics. Barons appealed to women in rural areas, asking for their help in particular, because it is they who led the singing of folk songs during seasonal celebrations. And it was they who most cherished these short verses in which so much meaning was enfolded. Some of these women told Barons that they had learned to properly read and write in order to help him compile a catalog of the Dinas. Thousands of correspondents, men as well as women, sent him over a quarter of a million of these short poems. Today, there are over a million on file at the National Library in Riga. Barons believed the folk songs expressed the spiritual beliefs of the Latvian people. They are, he wrote, the vessels of their soul. Want me to go on? That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I would love for you to just read a couple of the dinas themselves. Two folk songs describing rye cultivation and rye bread were among John's favorites. The first, which describes Dievs, the ancient Baltic god, striding through a field of rye, seems like one of the very old ones. Some experts believe that dinas are related to the Hindu dinas, the Hindu Vedas, a literary tradition that originated 8,000 years ago. The Dievs Dina describes in symbolic terms the time when rye, a fast replicating grass, 
that evolved in the Middle East spread across northeastern Europe. This event occurred thousands of years before the first Veda was composed. The song makes more sense when you know that rye turns a warm, earthy gray color when it is ready to be harvested. Dievs was striding through the rye field. He was wearing a gray coat. When he reached the edge, he spread over it gray ears of rye. It's so sophisticated. This poetry is so sophisticated. That's, it's, it's, um, the meaning is enfolded in what isn't said as well as what is said. Mm. It's, it's so moving to me. And then the second rye Dinah John loved was very different from the first. This verse was homey, earnest, highly domesticated, and prayerful in a way that recalls Christianity, whether it was Christian or not. Though Lutheranism has been the established religion in Latvia for 500 years, many Latvians, Christian and non, cling to pagan ideas and a mystical understanding of the natural world. And this poem is, God grant that I should die, as did father, as did mother, father threshing in the barn, mother kneading dough for bread. Wow. I, I really think the centrality of this bread to this culture is just, I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, but there's also that poem. Yes. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And, and uh, it's so touching to me. I mean, it took me so long to understand that and that I was able to convey it to, of course, you are a particular, a particularly knowledgeable and open-hearted reader, but still that I was able to convey that. It's very meaningful. It's very meaningful to me. Uh, one thing that really struck me as I was reading your story, um, the stories, the book is in three parts. The first part talks a lot about the story of your marriage. The second is the stories of your husband's childhood as a Latvian war refugee. And the third shares more of your rye bread research and also talks about your own family history through the lens of rye bread. Going back to the first part of the book, you're, you, you do um, hilariously present both of you as such kind of stubborn characters. One thing that I find really touching is that you sort of kind of refuse to learn Latvian. Um, oh, yeah. Right? And, it, and I think that it might have really helped you to maybe be more accepted by these people in the folk song group or whatever. Um, but in the end, you actually use your gift of language to go to Latvia and learn all about the Dinas. You know, so in the end... You know, rather than learning the language itself, you sort of, you, you hear the story, you find the story. And, and the, the piece that's not in the book, which is so incredibly um, moving to me and, and kind of brings things full circle is so when I married John, a lot of the, his, they're actually not his peers, they're they his friends, but they're slightly older because he was so little when he was in, when they, they ran away from Latvia. Um, he was only five. He was only five, but um, they were opposed to our marriage, and they were not particularly nice to me. And I am a very stubborn person, and I certainly and I was thirty five years old, and I was a writer, and I had written a book, and I knew who I was, and I wasn't Latvian. I was me, and John loved me as me, and I wasn't going to become anything else. 
And, and I wasn't even particularly, I was less interested than I might have. Well, I don't do well with coercion. That's really mm-hmm. the thing. Mm-hmm. That if it, if the door had been open and I had been allowed to tiptoe in, I might have tiptoe in a lot sooner. But you I'm wanted not to be t- accepted on your own terms. Yeah. Well, I insist upon it. I mean, yeah. in fact. And I was 35 years old. I was not a child. Um, and, but what the, the piece that's not in the book, because it's what followed the book, is that so many Latvian people, especially ones who are well of every age but particularly ones who are the the age of my stepdaughters so a little bit you know like in their 50s say um they are so thrilled by the book and so many latvian people have told me a you've told we've been seen and we're so grateful to be seen and also that I have captured the generational story because John, the impact of having a, a refugee in your family, well, it has an impact on the wife who was born in America, but it has a, a, a big impact on the American born children. Mm. And so my own, you know, my own kids, my own stepdaughter said to me, you know, now, now I understand mm. Tati. And I understand myself mm. because, and, and so there's been a coming full circle and, you know, my gift, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. I, in terms of the diners, I'm not sh- sure I re- regret. I, I mean, uh, linguistics isn't my gift, mm-hmm. um, but something else is this capacity to go deep. And to think about something for a long time until it opens itself up. I think that's my gift and that's what I was able to do. Mm-hmm. And so that would have been better. I mean, would that have, if I'd learned Latvian, if I'd really learned Latvian, of course it would have been better. But if I sort of learned Latvian the way I learned Hebrew for my bat mitzvah, it wouldn't have made any difference because you, you have to, you have to enter a language, yes, you know, to understand the poetry. And I think I understood it the way I understand things, which is I found the ideas that underlay it, and I thought about them a lot, and then it opened up to me. It's, you would have learned Latvian. Well, I mean, it, I say that in a loving and a good way. You know, though it. I love what you're saying, though. Even as you're saying linguistics isn't your gift, if let's say your gift is actually stories, history, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. getting this big picture and the details. And, and psychology. Yes. So, I mean, I'm not sure you don't understand linguistics, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I think you're you're getting to the heart of it and you're, you're finding these stories. And I'm loving, I loved reading your book and I loved, I um, actually listened to it on the audiobook, which was lovely, seeing how you work, you know, in the parts that are probably a little more similar to the coffee book where you're traveling around talking to bakers and stuff. And, and you, you and John are traveling together and you talk about having a recorder hanging off your neck and uh, you and he really together in your own ways, work you've done together, work you've done separately. Uh, it's, it's, you're like for folklorists. The linguistics part, I think you're, you're right in the sense that rather than understanding, rather than engage, um, moving into syntax, it's always my way to understand the big picture. 
So I understand the context, the linguistics context mm-hmm. for that language and that culture. And that's true. That is the way my mind works. Um, about being folklore. I mean, that, that John and I were that funny team. We, I became a folklorist because using the traditional techniques of journalism that I used for the coffee book didn't work. Mm-hmm. It didn't produce the coffee book at its best. And the, I was sort of, they gave me 10 months or eight months to mm-hmm. write it. And mm-hmm. the end is a little rushed, but the, be- the best parts of that book, you know, I really, it's the, it's a, it's narrative nonfiction. It's you put yourself in the story and then you, re- and if the, if the story is interesting and the people are interesting, you report what happens. And if you're a good reporter, you get something juicy and especially if you have a sense of humor. But, um, but when I tried to do that and writing about rye bread, it, it, um, was not very interesting. It wasn't deep. And you know, what I always say is that I could capture the specialty coffee industry is a new industry with maybe a hundred seminal figures. And I could, I literally followed around the three people, people thought, you know, people in the industry thought were the most creative and wacko and interesting. And I got a story, but you can't do that with the history of bread. It's way too broad and way too embedded and not in the first bread products have been now found in 30,000 years ago in several different um, archaeological digs in Europe. I mean, this is, and so we're talking about the history of the entire world. Mm-hmm. And you can't get that journalistically. You have, I, I mean, I had to, first of all, I had to realize I wasn't writing about bread. I was writing about rye bread. And then I had to admit to myself, I am not a baker and I'm not even interested in becoming a baker. I'm interested in, I'm always interested in meaning. So that's what I went after. And I just kept working it and working it. And and then, and the dinas really were, and the, the dinas and the scholarship about, around the dinas were, they, they opened doors to mm. me to go more deeply. Mm-hmm. You linked the scholarly research about the history of this culture, along with this cinematic, heartbreaking story about the war refugees that I want to ask you a little bit about, but then also with this marriage story. And you put all of them in there and you wove them together, I think, very successfully. And um, there's just there's, there's a lot of bang for the buck in here. I think it's very literary, but it's also very scholarly, but it's also very funny and, and very um, kind of intimate yeah, it's 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 an amazing book. I I I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh my god. Well, thank you. I um it's so touching. You know that writers you write to be read and you know that everybody when they read your book, they read their projection sure. of your and you know that you get it in such a complex way. Well, has made me fall in love with you. <laughs> I'll follow you anywhere, Rose. I mean, yes, really, really, really. Well, maybe really? we should we should go on an adventure together. I think. I would say that this book coming out has been extremely uh, rich experience for me in all kinds of ways, um, and especially with how Latvian, Latvian. Latvians and Latvian Americans, and they understand the different levels of the marriage. They understand the price, P 
people pay for being refugees and how that plays out in our marriage and in our family. Tell us a little bit about that story in part two of what your husband experienced when he was five years old. So uh, John was born, I always say, you know, a minute before World War II started. He was born in February. He's older than I am. And he was born in February of 1939. And in uh, a few months later, the Germans invaded Poland and you know, and all bets were off. And so he, uh, first the Russians invaded Latvia um, immediate at the very beginning of the war. And then they retreated because the Germans who originally they were allies, the, the Germans attacked and the Russians retreated. And then the Russians came back. The Russians came back in 1944 and John's parents, the the educated class, and they were newly educated in Latvia because it's a, it was a new country. But the educated class, basically, they all fled because they knew that the, when the Russians left in 1941, they had sent 20,000 people to their death in Siberia. And they didn't all die, but, and so they knew what was the bourgeois, they knew what was, what was coming for them. So, uh, John's family, they were accom- accompanied by, you know, hundreds, uh, pr- about a hundred thousand people fled. Um, but John's family fled and they fled. And this is the first thing I knew about John when I met him when I was 20. They fled west to Hitler's Germany. And I'm going, I mean, I was, stu- I studied history. I mean, I understood why they went west. But part of me, you went towards Hitler. Mm, Who yeah. are you? And I knew that, I mean, they were never, you know, they weren't complicit, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, you went west? So anyway, that sort of, and so I I actually explained how that happened. And they went west to escape the Russians. And the they went west as the, um, the Germans were also fleeing because they too were running away from the Russians. And they went first to the Sudetenland and, and, um, but John's mother was a, pharmacist. And when the war broke out, she had stockpiled medical supplies. And um, I always get the name of this kind of alcohol wrong. And I, I, but anyway, it's basically a hundred proof alcohol that has medicinal purposes. But if you cut it with water, 50, 50, it makes vodka and which is more precious than gold during wartime. And so she had stockpiled all this stuff. And when they fled, they took a train to the Sudetenland. There was their first, and they took their big suitcase. They with their crates, and they had all this stuff. And they basically bribed their way, uh, were able to bribe their way across Europe. Um, they went to the Sudetenland, and then the Sudetenland also fell to the Russians, was falling, and they had to flee again. And they made it. They took a train across Germany. They. I think John says John I think that my mother-in-law's vodka was a big help but they they got themselves a bunch of Latvian families got themselves on a cattle car get this a cattle car you know we know what these cattle cars had gone east with human cargo but so there's empty cat have cattle cars the cattle car is attached to a coal train that the Germans are moving across Germany because they don't want the allies to catch it and to get their hands on it. And they go across Germany on a train as Germany is burning, literally burning. 
And, but somehow they make it. They may, and they head towards a southwest corner of, <clears throat> excuse me, of Germany where there's no, um, uh, it, where there's, where there's no military, nothing, nothing of value to bomb. It's a rural area near Lake, uh, Lake Constance and near the Swiss border and the French border. And when Germany falls, it becomes the French zone. And so they spent, John's family spent five years in the French zone. So here's this little kid born in Latvia whose nanny spoke German. He already speaks Latvian and German. And then he, and he, and he grows up from the age of five to the age of 10 in the French zone, speaking French at school and, but living in a village. I am not exaggerating. There are 12 houses in this village and it looks like it came right out of the Grim, Grimm's fairy tale. I have never seen a place so remote. Um, adjacent to that tiny village is a larger village where, in fact, there were many Latvian families. But John's family is living really in the, not just in the 19th century, maybe in the 18th century. There was electricity. There's no bathrooms. There, I mean, it, it, it was so, um, it was so primitive. For the first 25 years of our marriage, I didn't understand that John's experience as a refugee is actually very different from the other Latvian refugees who were in the English zone or the American zone, or God forbid, if you were in the Russian zone, you know, when the war ended, you they sent you back and they killed you. So, um, but it, it, what he had a most unique, childhood. And that's so my theoretical physicist husband, um, who is Latvian and who loves rye bread is also partially, he's, he's like a creature from another century. You know, I mean, I, I mean, and, 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 and I mean, John never had a toy that they didn't build themselves. It's, 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 um, it's an un, it's it's sort of unimaginable. And what's fascinating is how unimaginable it is to his children. And that's why my writing the book, I think, for the family, it opened up, oh, that's why he's so strange. He's not strange. I mean, he's a very devoted and loving person, but you know, he's also strange as as are we all. But um There there are so many people with an immigration story or a refugee story who can relate to this tale with or you know or the descendants of someone with a story like this with the effects on the family with these things that are hard to understand with these stories that take uncovering um and also i think sort of the absurdity and the close calls it's really a riveting riveting account in in part 2 of the book i i really hope someone makes a movie out of it it's 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 a really fascinating story um, and as you get into part three of the story and you start to write about your own family history with your own Jewish family eating the same rye bread, you know, your your forebears in, you know, Belarus area, um, I started to wonder, I hope you don't mind me asking you this, yeah. was it almost easier for you to to face John's past than to reckon with your own family history during the war, like perhaps researching and telling John's story was an indirect way 
to get you closer to this this really heavy history that you you know, both understood, but also you talk so much about seeming to feel kind of guilty for growing up in a in a privileged way. This this sort of survivor story Did, was researching John's war tale kind of a way for you to to indirectly look sideways at at your own family story. I think that's brilliant. And and what's so amazing is I did not know. You see that you you write a you you start to write a project. You I had no idea, mm. and I had been brought up. I, this what this book taught me is that my parents my my so my parents are both first generation americans but my father was a college educated first generation american who became a naval officer in the us navy which is extremely unusual for jewish americans they the the navy but after my, and my mother worked in a Boeing plant and um, during the war, and she had a little child who went to the Boeing nursery school. My parents were so profoundly that war experience was their generational experience, and it was so important, and it um, it confirmed their profound Americanism, and that America had defeated Hitler, and for my parents, in some ways. They turned their back on the fact that though they had a lot of cousins who di- who died in the Holocaust, they they never dealt with that. They because everybody dealt deals with the drama of their own that comes close to them, mm-hmm. and it, for them it was World War II and it and making it into the managerial class and um, and educating daughters and making them ladies and you know okay so I really didn't get it. I must say, and I'm not very religious, although I'm very culturally Jewish. And I really didn't understand, and I didn't expect to understand. But one of the um, unusual long-term things that, as I dealt with this material, I also had to deal with my own. But it, I, it, 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 it wasn't intuitive. It came slowly, and my friend Sarah who's not Jewish and who's English and who I teach with, she got it. I, there, there's a scene in the book. She got it before I got it. We're sitting in the, we both swim and we were sitting in the hot tub after swimming and, and she's questioning me <laughs> and I'm going, no, 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 that's not my story. Right. So what I learned is that multiple generational, the conveyance of trauma exists on both sides of our families. Mm -hmm. I will say that I do think that many Jewish Americans uh, have a lot of denial. It's interesting, have a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, I hang out with these shrinks. There's a shrink term called counterphobic, which is that, and counterphobic is you look at what you're the scaredest, you're most frightened and you, and you say, I'm not scared of that. I'm going to, I'm not scared of heights. I'm going to go bungee cord jumping. And you kind of leap over your fear by what you do, but you never deal with inside. And I think for my family, that was certainly true. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and it was writing this book unveiled that to me. Um, And I, I, there are other Jewish people who, you know, who had, relatives who fled in the thirties. And I mean, very, very, there are very many different American Jewish stories around the Holocaust, but that was ours. And, um, and so, yes, the book 
as books will, the book led me to a confrontation with John's past and with my own, that I was really surprised. But I think that any writing worth doing is going to surprise the writer. That's in fact. I I really appreciated how you let that kind of hang out in the last part of the book. There's some scenes where you finally go back to where family members of yours were lost and, and you kind of freak out. Um, and yes, yeah, and yes. you know, I after we've re- we've read this incredibly cinematic, tightly researched, poignant account, and then we go back into the voice of the first part of this book with this bracing honesty. And I was I was really kind of moved because even in the narrative, you position it as you're behaving badly because you kind of freak out when you're in Lithuania doing trying to do the same kind of work that you did for John and expecting it to be the same for you. But how could it be? You know, it, it's these stories trying to bridge through these silences that you had experienced in, in your own generational story. I don't know. I actually, I think I would have been on your side in this moments when you were behaving badly. You were, you were having some emotions. And I think, I think those were good emotions. I think there's, there's, you know, maybe there's more, maybe there's more stories there. Maybe there's more, more to tell. Well, that's why I want to do another, you know, I'm not so young. I, you know, I want to live long enough to write the next one, which deals with this stuff more and deals with it. But it also keeps looping back to food because, you know, gender, gender was the issue of my generation and is the issue of my generation. And women, our struggle to birth ourselves as full people and what it meant to me to write, you know, in my 20s kind of entirely by accident, my best friend and I wound up writing this this book called The History of Women in America, which is still in print. And because Carol was working for a publisher who wanted a, a literally wanted a pamphlet about women's history, because that's what it would be desert- worth. And, you know, seven years later, Bantam published this as a, um, as a, um, as an original paperback. But Learning about those brave women in the past is why I've had the life I I lived. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love my parents. I adored my mother. I adored my grandmother. And I learned, I mean, I learned many things from them, but I did not learn how to live as an independent person on this earth from them. I learned that from women's history. And so I want to come back and visit some of that, but I also want to visit my my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, after whom I'm named, was an anarchist with a gun. But then he he died a very tragic death, but it had nothing to do with anarchism, his anarchism, and, and he was young. And so there's also this whole, in my family, um, there's, a, there's lots of multi-generational impact of trauma and the death of my grandfather. And, but so I want to, I want to kind of cozy down with that um, with that stuff. I'm going to start a Substack. I'm here by 2024. I'm starting as soon as I figure out what that means <laughs> because I'm old. I'm doing it and I'm going to start a Substack and I'm going to start writing pieces because that's writing pieces is the way you start a memoir, you know, you just Well, you just start. sign me up for that. I'll be your I'll be your Substack reader. Yeah. I was really touched when you talk about visiting your Jewish grandmother in New York City and, you know, generally 
appreciating the grocery stores here. That's something that I can really relate to. There's a, a really sweet story at Zabar's, which is a famous grocery store in New York City, where um, you you have this this hilarious, really sweet uh, story about sharing this rye bread with with people coming and tasting it. Um, that is a lovely story. But I just really encourage everybody to get this book. It's the the rye bread marriage wherever you buy books by Michael Wiseman. Can you tell us about your website? Right. So I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. And if you go on my Instagram, there's this little link tree thing and you can hook up to all the stuff I've written and you can also find a way to buy the book. And also I have a website that has tons and tons and tons of material. It has all these articles I've written about food over the years. It has the Zabar's chapter. It does on your website. Yeah, exactly. www michaelweismanwrites.com and so it's m-i-c-h-a-e-l-e w-e-i-s-s-m-a-n w-r-i-t-e-s dot com michael weisman writes it's really fun talking to somebody who has been doing for so long the kind of work that i've just started doing in the last in the last couple of years for for wine and just telling stories. Your book meant a lot to me, and thank you so much for coming onto the show. It was a complete and utter joy, Rose. I mean, it's the the meaning of the nothing in life is more joyous than the meaning of the minds. You know, you may you meet a new person and you listen to one another, and then you find that you're really hearing one another. And it's 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 a gift and it's a talk about adventures. It's a wonderful adventure. So thank you. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for being here. Wherever you go and whatever you like to drink, always remember to enjoy your life and to never stop learning. Follow Moto Di Berry on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok for even more unique and encouraging drinks and language content. If you would love for the show to continue and grow, support Moto Di Berry on Patreon and unlock bonus episodes. Find out more at motodberry.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter. Music for the podcast was composed by Ercilia Prosperi and performed by the band O. Oh. You can purchase their recordings at oumusic.bandcamp.com. Yeah.